0: who might be a bit concerned about the barn blowing over, let me just reassure you that the previous barn to this one already did, so we don't have to worry about it. (laughs) It did, truly. About a year before the bridge began, there was an old, rusted out, rotted out barn like so many barns we see around here. They're just kind of barely hanging on for dear life, and there's something rustic and scenic and rural about it but uh, it blew down in a windstorm and and Rod and Barb were disappointed because they thought oh well that's that's going to be it that's the end of the barn I guess we won't have that on our property anymore and they just checked on a whim to see what their homeowners insurance would do and the homeowners insurance paid for this. So God was preparing to have a place and they didn't understand even when it happened they didn't understand why what, why a barn this and there was hay in here and really nothing else the rope swing. A pitch back for their son. I mean there there was nothing else in here and they didn't really understand why a barn this nice would be provided. And looking back now we see the sovereignty of the Lord as he prepared even for this night that we would have a place, a shelter from the wind outside and the cold, where we can study the word together and worship. And I'm so thankful for that. We broke the story on Sunday morning. David sinned. 2 Samuel 11 reported the news of David's most infamous sin with Bathsheba in an honest and graphic example of what we call the progression of transgression. From time to time when we talk about sin, as, as Scripture reveals it, as we're going through the Bible, going through the Word, and, and sin becomes the topic, and it does, I always tend to get one or two emails in the week following. And it intrigues me, what I what I hear, because the email I got this week was um, following, actually, it wasn't even someone who was here Sunday morning. They were saying that they got the email that I sent out talking about Sunday morning and, and sin and lust and sexual sin and everything. And if you didn't get that email, you can go to the website and it's there under Pastor Updates. In fact, I would encourage you to because there's some great resources there, especially for parents with kids and dealing with the internet for uh, men with guys and dealing with sexual temptations and lust especially where the internet is concerned there's some great resources there so you can check that out but uh, the email that was sent to me just said uh, wow I I got your email and I was surprised to hear you talking about sin we just don't hear about that very much these days my reaction is wow I hear about it every day (laughs) my life I'm aware of it constantly I don't walk around weighed down with guilt, but I am aware of sin. In fact, the more aware I am of grace, the more obvious my sin is to me. So sin is a reality in our lives, and we best get used to that and understand that, and thank God for His grace that allows us to walk with Jesus in spite of our sin. That we are healed and saved and washed clean. But we need to be wise. And we need to be aware because Satan would like nothing better than to pull the rug out from under us and cause us to fall. As he does with David, who up to this point, in fact the first ten chapters of 2 Samuel are David's triumphs. This king is doing great. He comes into his own. He's anointed by the tribe of Judah. Anointed again by the tribe of Israel. All the people rally to him. He is a great king. He's a compassionate king. He's a graceful king who shows grace to men, to cripples like Mephibosheth and shows them love and and understanding and brings them in and adopts them to his own table. And we read these stories of David going all the way back to Goliath, all the way through the 10th chapter of 2 Samuel and we say, What a great guy! a man after God's own heart and to some degree we see Jesus in him and we praise God for that we say this is the kind of man who if you follow God you can be like this and then chapter 11 hits like a storm and the world would look at chapter 11 as the world looks at you and at me when we fall and they will say see that's the kind of people they really are and that reflects on their God so called and there is consequence and there is fallout we need to be a people who are aware of sin and how it works and how satan uses it how he taps into our passions and our passions by the way are not all bad david's passion for the lord is what made him a man after god's own heart his passion is what caused him to write the psalms the beautiful psalms that we go to ourselves when we want to dial down and enter in in prayer before the lord his passion led him to lead israel his passion Led him to love God like nobody we have seen so far in Scripture. He had a great passion that Satan twisted to lust. A lust problem that as we talked about in the email shared and, and was pointed out to me on Sunday, a lust that was there for a long, long time. Passion is not a bad thing, but it can be twisted to lust. James writes in James 1.14, I repeat this from Sunday, Each one, when he is tempted, is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And nowhere in Scripture do we find a story more compelling, a story that fits that exact description better than the story of David and Bathsheba. Lust, when it conceives, gives birth. When it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's accomplished, brings forth death. And all of that happened in this story with David. All of it occurred in his life, and we saw that, and talked about it Sunday morning. And at first, it seems like David got away with it. If you look at the timeline and consider what was going on, I mean, his main guy Joab in the army—they're out fighting at Rabbah against the Ammonites. And this war is going on over here. And you're going to see tonight at the end of this chapter how David actually in the midst of all this goes out to claim victory in this war. Everything is hidden. The sin is a secret sin. No one really knows about it. Bathsheba gets nine months of pregnancy, has the baby. David brings her into the, into the palace with him. And as far as it looks from the outside, everything went by. It came off. Yeah, Uriah is dead, but nobody knows. It was in battle, so it's a good cover-up. Yeah, Bathsheba was pregnant, but people could have assumed that it was Eli. I mean, it's all behind us, right? It's all back there. My sin, it's all. I'm not going to think about that anymore. I'm just going to move on. Repent? Why? I'm covered. But that last verse of chapter 11 says, The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And before we take another step, we realize God knew exactly what was going on. The Lord knows exactly what's going on, and even when we think we can deceive ourselves that we have gotten rid of that old sin and we just we can just kind of let it go, ignore it. God knows. The Bible tells us Numbers 32, 23, "Be sure your sin will find you out." I use that verse a lot, and that's not to say, by the way, that that God is just pounding you, waiting for you to mess up so he can pin you down under his thumb. Ah, I knew you were going to sin. Well, that's not our Father. Your sin will find you out. Your sin will catch up with you. The Lord in His graciousness tells us ahead of time, Man, if you sin, it will catch up to you. Be sure of this. It's not heavy-handed judgment from the Lord. It's love from a father who had warned his children. Galatians 6 verse 7 Do not be deceived God is not mocked Whatever a man sows This he will also reap And it's harvest time for David It's interesting It takes roughly a year For this sin to come out It seems to work that way Secret sin Secret hidden things Tend to take a year or so And I'm not trying to pin it down To an exact time frame But it's interesting How things that we even forget about Will come back around And, and bite us just when we thought it was, it was over with and forgotten. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 begins, The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, before we even get out of the first sentence, I like that. I like the sound of this. Remember I said a few minutes ago, if you think about that place of being caught, I want you to watch and see how God catches David. How he reveals to David what he knew all along. How he brings David back into a place of repentance and confession. And it begins with this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. So what's the big deal? Nathan was a prophet, right? Of course he sent Nathan to David. We already know that. I think there's more to it than that. I think the scripture indicates to us and we can see that Nathan and David were good friends. They were close. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we already see David hanging out with Nathan. It's in the down times The peaceful times in, in Israel and he's hanging with Nathan and, and this is someone he chooses to be with He wants to be around him and he says Hey Nathan what do you think I have I, a I mind to build a temple for the Lord And Nathan says Yeah Man do what's in your heart to do That sounds great Why would Nathan say that He's not speaking prophetically He's speaking as a friend He loves David That's a great idea Go for it David of course, God steps in and says, "No, no, no, whoa, Nathan, you need to go back and tell David that's not going to happen. I'll build him a house." But the whole point is that he's hanging out together, Nathan and David. You might say, "Well, Rick, that's kind of a stretch." Okay, well, David and Bathsheba eventually will have four sons. Listen to their names. First Chronicles chapter three, verse five. They were born to David in Jerusalem. Shemiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. David names one of his children after Nathan. These two guys, I believe, were close friends. (laughs) By the way, you Bible students know that David's son Nathan is the one through whom the line of Jesus will be legally traced. I was asked this question actually by Michelle earlier this week. I, I want to point something out. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel chapter 12 just for a quick moment and jump over to Luke chapter 3. I want to explain something. I said in a recent study... That if you go through the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, you see the line of Joseph. If you go through the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, you see the genealogy of Mary. And yet if you read it, it's a little confusing. So let me show you why we see what we see. Just so you know, I think this is an important thing. People may ask about it, so you can be aware of this. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. It says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And then it continues on down, the son of, the son of, the son of, as as you go on down the list. Now reading that, just straightforward, you go, okay, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So this is the line of Joseph, right? Wrong. The line that, that says, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, stands alone. Because Eli was not Joseph's father. Eli was Joseph's father-in-law. Eli was Mary's father. And so what Luke is doing is he is now going to, from Eli all the way down, give the genealogy back to Nathan, David's son Nathan, that comes all the way up to Jesus through Mary, not through Joseph. The reason we understand this is, is two things, where it says, as was supposed, Luke is kind of making a point here. People would have thought it was Joseph, you and I know it really wasn't. You and I know the Father is the Father. (laughs) The Father is the Holy Spirit, who came to Mary and she was with child. Luke's saying, we understand that, we get that. So, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, and then the phrase, even the son of there, means the seed of, or the offspring of, or in this case, the grandson of Eli. So that's how we understand that this is the line of Mary and over in Matthew you will see the line to Joseph and that's through Solomon. And we saw before there was a curse on that line through Jeconiah so the line of Solomon to Jesus being a cursed line would mean whoever came of that line could not sit on the throne. Joseph, Jesus' father, could not sit on the throne in Israel. But God sidesteps that drawing through Nathan, David's son, through Mary, the physical mother of Jesus, and Jesus has every right, legally, as well as spiritually, to sit on the throne. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, just wanted you to know that, and if that doesn't make sense, talk to me afterwards, and I'll, I'll try and explain it a little better. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan the prophet, who David named one of his sons after, the son that then would be of the lineage of Jesus later on. The Lord sent Nathan to David. What's the point? Why am I pointing this out to you? Because God sends a friend to dole out correction. And I think in looking at how the Father works in his gentleness, and his love, and his compassion, he has a way of doing that, of sending someone who loves you to correct, to rebuke. I was in youth, uh, youth ministry actually early on. Before I was a paid youth pastor, I was volunteering working for a junior high group at my home church in Southern California. And the the youth pastor was a great friend of mine. His name was Darren Hull. Darren and I hung out all the time and had a great, in fact, Darren was a big reason why I ended up going into youth ministry ultimately. But I was working with a junior high, and he was working in high school, and he he kind of was overseeing me, and I I wasn't being paid or anything. And one Sunday morning, I just felt like sleeping in. I woke up, and I'm lying there in bed, and I'm going, ah. I've got a cough. I can't go teach those junior high kids. I mean, I just don't feel well. I need, to, I need another hour in bed. So I, I called up Darren and... Darren, yeah, not feeling good. I just need to... Can you get someone else? So I got someone else. Of course, an hour later, Cheryl and I went out to breakfast. Darren called me that afternoon. And I answered the phone. Hello? How you doing, Rick? fine <laughs> what's up and Darren used these words and it kicked me off he said Rick I feel like I need to rebuke you oh yeah well I feel like I why <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, we talked about this and, and you know what I was guilty he nailed me to the wall and I love him for it, because it's my friend, he even said to me in that conversation, man, I, I wouldn't have called if I didn't care, but I just, I just feel like you need to understand you made a commitment here, and you, you dropped the ball on that, and he was right. It came from a friend, and I was able to accept it. Had it come from a critic... Had it come from someone who was against me, had it come from someone who I didn't know or had no respect for, it would have been much more difficult to take. And when the Lord has a word of correction, he inevitably sends someone who has a heart for you. Someone who truly loves you, that's the type of person God would send. Now the converse of that is important for us as Christians. If you don't love someone, if you don't have a true compassion for them, it's probably not your call to go rebuke them. You probably are not the right person to bring it to them if it's out of spite, if it's just trying to catch them, if it's trying to trip somebody up. And here's a good standard to follow when it comes to calling someone else to account for their sin John chapter 13, the apostles are in a big argument. Who's the greatest? Well, I'm the greatest because I hang out with them more than you do. But yes, Peter, James, and John. Yeah, the insiders. Oh, his best friends. That's not fair. What about me, Andrew might say. What about me, Thaddeus might say. Hey, what about me, Judas might say. I'm the greatest. I'm going to have this big argument. And Jesus strips down to the waist, reaches out of the table, pulls out a wash basin, and starts going around washing their feet. I, I wonder if they're still arguing at the time, you know. No, I'm the greatest. I'm the, something's wet on my foot. And Jesus, what are you doing, man? He starts washing Person to person to person. You know the story. He comes to Peter, and Peter says, Oh, no, 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 don't wash my feet, Lord. You shall never wash my feet. And he says, Well, if I don't, you have no part of me. Oh, well, then shower me. Wash me all over. And the Lord says, No, that that um, that would be disgusting. You just, he doesn't say that. I'm ad living a dead here. No, no, all you need is to have your feet washed, he says, and you'll be clean. But then he tenderly and gently rebukes them. Listen to how he does it. John 13, 12. Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you should also do as I did for you. Don't point out the dirt on other people's feet unless you're willing to wash them. If you care about someone enough to bend down on the ground, pull out a wash basin, and wash their feet, if they matter that much to you, you have every right to bring a correction from the Lord to them. Otherwise, I would say, maybe you're not the person to do it. This is Jesus' example to us. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36-50, through we have another story of another foot washing. We see Jesus and and the people, Jesus and and a couple of his guys invited to Simon the Pharisee's house. And they come in and they sit down and they're having dinner. And in the middle of this, this woman off the street comes rushing in. She's weeping and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. And she starts drying them off with, with her long hair. And she takes out expensive perfume and starts anointing his feet, not his head, his feet with the perfume and Simon, the Pharisee, is aghast. Oh. Obviously, this Jesus is no prophet. He can't even know that this woman is a sinner. He's washing his feet right now, and they're just disgusting. And Jesus doesn't even know, and Simon is in full-fledged judgment, not only of the woman, but of Jesus. Turning toward the woman, Luke 7:44, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. The heart of Simon was clearly not the heart of a friend but the heart of a critic and an enemy. And so he's judging Jesus. And he doesn't even have the full picture. This woman is washing the feet of Jesus out of sorrow and repentance and adoration. She's right on the mark. The heart of Simon, not a friend. And so he rebuked and didn't have a right to. Heart of Jesus rebuking the apostles lovingly, gently, the way a friend is called to bring correction to a friend. The Lord sent Nathan. So even before we get one sentence in, again, the Lord sent Nathan. He said, "I need to deal with David, but I'm not going to over. I'm not going to come down with a baseball bat and just start going at him. I'm not going to send an enemy. I'm not even going to bring an enemy from a distant land to fight against Israel and show David in front of everybody. What I'm going to do is send his friend." Nathan because I need David to hear with his heart. The best person to bring a rebuke or a correction is someone who truly loves the person being corrected. Verse 1 so the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished. He grew up together with him and his children. They would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to them. Was a little pet lamb. Now a traveler came to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the lamb who had come to him. It's a brutal parable. Well, then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Now David was right in his answer, mostly. David is quoting Old Testament law, Hebrew law. Exodus 22, verse 1 says if someone does damage, kills their neighbor's lamb or ox, that he is to repay. It's the law of restitution. He is to repay fourfold. David quotes scripture. He understands the rules But he takes it a step further. In his passion, burning in his anger, David calls for this guy's death. As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And whether or not it's a horrible story, there's no death penalty in Scripture for putting your neighbor's lamb on a spit. It's not there. But you do have to make restitution fourfold. It's not nice, but it's not deserving of death. However... When I am harboring a secret sin, I tend to be more judgmental, more harsh, more condemning of others who share that same sin. That's another principle. If you're taking notes, you can jot these things down. There will be about five or six things that we'll just throw out there. The first one was God sent a friend to dole out correction. The second one is a secret sin depletes our compassion. Secret sin depletes our compassion. David obviously doesn't realize this is a parable. As Nathan is speaking, he is thinking someone in his kingdom did this and he is incensed. And his heart, his own heart, marred by this secret lust, marred by his secret adultery, his secret murder, is judgmental and hypocritical toward this fictional rich man. Contrast that with the most compassionate man ever to walk the face of the earth. Contrast David's attitude toward this supposed sin with that of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus act when he was face to face with a woman caught in adultery? John chapter 8. How did Jesus respond toward the woman at the well who had had five husbands and now was living with a man who wasn't even her husband? John chapter 4. How did Jesus react to Peter who betrayed him, who spoke against him three times, He restored him to ministry, John chapter 21. Why? Because Jesus was free from sin. Jesus himself had no sin, and true righteousness, true rightness before God, doesn't take away compassion for sinners, it deepens our compassion for sinners. The more I am like Jesus, the more compassion and love I have for someone who is a sinner, rather than judgment. If I'm becoming more judgmental in my Christian walk, I challenge you to this thought, I am not becoming more like Jesus, but less like Jesus. And it's possible there's hidden secret sin in my life that is the real issue. David's got this secret sin, and he is in full-on judgment. Unchecked sin depletes our compassion. So the next time you find yourself coming down on someone a little harder than possibly you should, wanting to rebuke someone who you really don't care for very much anyway, maybe you should stop, I should stop, and we should double-check our own hearts. There's something going on in my life that's causing me to get riled up about this. Because when you're free from sin, you are free to love. Just as Jesus was. I love what he says to the woman caught in adultery. He says in John Chapter 8, verse 7. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. Why would he say that? Because people without sin aren't into throwing stones. People without sin love and have compassion for people who are under the burden of sin. Well, David's fired up, but a wave of remorse is about to come crashing over him. Verse 7. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. The Lord God of Israel says, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Now some might grab on to verse 8 and go, Oh, so God gave David all his wives. That's from the Lord. That's not the point. And the Lord is saying here is, I gave you everything you have. I have been nothing but generous to you, and if that wasn't enough, David, I would have given you more. If you needed more, I'd provide more for you. And it makes me think about Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about that. God is a generous God. He wants to bless His people. He just doesn't want His people all focused on getting more blessings. So he says to David, I would have given you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Verse 9. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword will shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your own eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. As we saw Sunday, Absalom will do that. His own son. Verse 12, Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And as we shall see from this point forward, David has an all-American dysfunctional family. His family is an absolute mess. Sons raping daughters, daughter sons murdering sons, sons sleeping with their father's wives, even to the usurping of David's throne, it will be a roller coaster ride of trouble from this point through the rest of David's life. It won't stop. In fact, even though David has reached the pinnacle of his career as, as king over all Israel and Judah, he is going to be on the run again and he's going to be back living in caves. To try and save himself against the onslaught of his son Absalom and others who are against him. And all because his passion got tweaked and became lust, which became sin, which brought about death. The death of Uriah, the death of a child. Again, this isn't just judgment that God is unloading on top of David I'm going to do this this this, and this. boom and there's more coming i got to get I got to, there's got to be more ways that I can really hurt David what he's got that's not what God's doing here number three in your notes secret sin demands its consequences we may sin in secret we may think we can hide it away but the consequences will follow and again I'm not saying this to be judgmental or to, to produce guilt in anyone that's, that's not the point the point is that we know now ahead of time And if you have secret sin in your life if you've got something unconfessed that you're hiding away and you don't want to deal with the Lord wants you to deal with it. Secret sin demands its consequences. The Lord is explaining the sad fallout of David's actions and all of this will happen. What what does David do? Does he argue the point? Does he get defensive or make excuses or try to cast the blame on Bathsheba after all it was her bath in the first place? She's the one who, I, you know, I was just there. And I, you know, got caught up in what she was. What David does is interesting to me. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't fight it. He doesn't argue. It's just simple, honest confession. And God accepts it. In fact, immediately, Nathan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now that might bother some people. That might incense you a little bit. Wait a minute. David murdered Uriah and all he has to do is say, I sinned against the Lord and he's off got free That's it? One simple one-liner confession? He should pay for this. Adultery, murder, deceiving his entire country. Adultery, deceiving his entire country. Man, that seems modern to me. <laughs> David should have to pay for and prove his sincerity. Here's the problem with that stance. We want sincere proof of an apology because we can't see what's really going on in a person's heart. The evangelical community, when Bill Clinton was caught, we all knew what was going on long before that, but when he was actually caught, the evangelical community was incensed because, you know, he, he wasn't fessing up to it. Now, I don't know what was in his heart, and neither do you. I know I judged his heart pretty severely in my own mind, in my own life, but I don't know what was there. I don't know what was going on. And the problem of taking a stance with someone who apologizes for a sin that may have hurt you in your life, the problem of taking the stance that says you've got to prove that you're sincere, you've got to pay for what you did, is that we don't know what's really going on inside. Only the person and the Lord know what's happening. We read this one sentence from David. One sentence, I have sinned against the Lord, and to me, in that reading, it's not enough. But I don't know David's heart. Well, actually I do. Turn to Psalm fifty-one. Psalm fifty-one, we get insight into David's journal. We get to see what was in David's heart and to understand what he was thinking and how he was feeling. I highly doubt David wrote Psalm 51 thinking someday it was going to be published in multiple languages. Someday we're going to be sitting here reading his personal journal on a Wednesday night at the bridge. I don't think he was thinking that. He was pouring out his heart Listen to Psalm 51, a personal page from David's journal. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity And cleanse me from my sin For I know my transgressions And my sin is ever before me Against you You only I have sinned And done what is evil in your sight So you are justified when you speak And blameless when you judge Now now wait a minute David You're saying against the Lord And the Lord only have you sinned What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? If, you know, if she was forced into this, which is possible, how can you say against the Lord only have you sinned? Because gang, Bathsheba was guilty. And by the way, so was Uriah. Uriah was guilty of what? I don't know. I just know he was guilty. Uriah had a sin nature just like you and me. He wasn't guilty of what we see in Scripture, but he was a guilty man. He was a sinner too. He was not innocent. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. A question often asked is answered right here. People will say, Why do bad things happen to good people? Friends, there are no good people. The real question we should ask is, Why do good things happen at all? Why do good things happen to any of us? Because truth be told, if left to our own devices, we sin. And we are sinners. And whatever Uriah's sin was beside the point, and if you call that unfair, again, we don't know Uriah's life story. We don't know what was going on with him. But we know he was a human being and therefore not innocent. And so when David says, against you, and you only, I have sinned, he is spot on. That is exactly right. When we sin, gang, the only true victim, if we can even use that word, the only true victim of our sin is Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, and I I say this gently because I, I know some people might disagree with me on this, but whatever we go through in life, whatever we go through in life is nothing compared to what we deserve to go through. And I know what I'm saying. And I do understand that there is pain in many of our lives here that runs deep, caused by other people. And we say, how can you say that? I can say that because I see Jesus on the cross. And because he is the only person who deserves nothing of what he got. I deserve punishment. I deserve judgment. I'm not saying if you have been abused that you somehow deserved earned that abuse or that that was right or you should have been abused in that way. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we don't get what we truly deserve. If not for Jesus Christ, if not for Calvary gang, we would get what we truly deserve and that is the place prepared for the devil and his angels and that's hell. Which is a whole lot worse than the worst that ever happened to any of us there's only been one victim in all history only one perfect man and I I struggle a little bit even with calling Jesus a victim because it's pretty clear by reading through the gospel of John that he was in full control even of his death that he was orchestrating everything going on getting things exactly where they needed to be because he's God and he knew exactly what he was doing and he accepted that but we can call Jesus the only true victim because he's the only man who did not deserve anything negative that happened to him. He's the only perfect one. Revelation chapter 4, the cherubim cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And immediately, the 24 elders, they fall down. and They say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things because of your will. They existed and were created. And you see this going round and round as the cherubim then go, Yeah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And the twenty four elders fall back down and over and over and perpetually, because they see and understand something that we will see and understand, the perfection of God, the wonder of who he is were talking about that this morning at staff meeting how how absolutely awesome it's going to be to be before god in the throne room there in heaven and worshiping and not wanting to go do anything else because we'll finally get it we're not going to go i'm a little worn out from worship i'm going to go grab a burger you want to you want to come with me gabriel we're going to just be so caught up and enraptured who's going to want to do anything but worship the lord That's what the Lord deserves, our worship. What He took was our sin. blows my mind. David goes on after saying, Against you only I have sinned. Verse 5 of Psalm 51, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Some have said that possibly David's birth was illegitimate. But maybe that's why he said that. That really can't be proven. I think David's just pointing out a greater truth that we are born into the world with a sin nature that is good to go. Ready to sin. Hardwired for it. Behold, verse 6, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Where, where was that secret sin? It was in the hidden part. David is now opening wide and inviting the wisdom and the goodness and the righteousness of God into that very place. He says, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Lord, make me hear joy and gladness. He says, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. That's shepherd language. Perhaps you've heard this before, but when a little lamb had a tendency to wander off, what a shepherd would do to retrain the lamb is break its legs. He would break the lamb's legs and then gently and carefully reset the legs and bind them and then he would carry the lamb on his shoulders while the legs healed. Perhaps you've seen the picture of the good shepherd is Jesus with a lamb on his shoulder. That's a famous painting. That is real life shepherding in the Middle East of those days. And he would put the lamb on his shoulders and walk. And when those legs were finally strong, he could undo the bandages, put the little lamb on the ground, and the lamb would follow him wherever he went because the lamb had become dependent on the shepherd. And David says, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. I get it, Lord. I am crushed. And it's made me more dependent on you than I ever was before. Over in Psalm 32. Keep keep yourself there in Psalm 51. Let me just read this to you. In Psalm 32, David describes this painful period of time when he was hiding this very sin against Bathsheba, against the Lord. Psalm 32.5, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away. As with the fever heat of summer... I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That picture is dramatic, eh? But it's real, isn't it? Can you not relate to the fact that when we hide our sin, we waste away? It's exhausting. It's depressing. It certainly makes you not want to grace the doors of a church, because man though nobody knows God knows and I just can't go there and it just messes everything up and this is what David is saying and in verse 9 of Psalm 51 he says hide your face from my sins blot out my iniquities create in me a clean heart O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me why? because it's the one thing David longed for the most was that relationship with God don't don't leave me now I know I messed up big time. I know I sinned. Don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I love this. And sustain me with a willing spirit. The word willing there is better translated free. Free. Sustain me with a free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. When, when I'm confessed and when I'm clean then sinners will be turned to you. Why? Because then I've got a story to share. And we need to understand, I think I've shared this before, the best witness that we have to people about Jesus Christ is not what our life was like before Christ, it's what our life is like now in Christ. Now that I've been restored and I've been received, now that my repentance has been accepted, my confession has been brought before the Lord and I'm clean and I'm whole and I'm loved and now I've got a testimony. Not those years that I wandered deep in sin. And I've heard testimonies where people can tell—boy, they tell stories—and just go, "Wow, you were a dirty sinner." I'm impressed. <laughs> that doesn't turn anybody to the Lord. What turns people to the Lord is what He's doing now. How oh, He has healed your life and restored you. Now He loves you in spite of all that junk. Which I don't even need to get into that, but I will get into Jesus in my life now because <laughs> He is good. Psalm 51, gang, it reveals the sincerity of David's confession. We don't get that from 2 Samuel chapter 12. We don't see it. We get one sentence from David. I have sinned before the Lord. But we don't get the outpouring of his soul, of his spirit, of his heart. Psalm 51, we get the real deal. The heart of a man who is after God's own heart. All that to say, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Because oftentimes when someone does confess a sin and they don't confess it in the way we think they should, we don't know what's going on in the heart. So let the Lord worry about that. Verse 13 in chapter 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Amazing. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. This is real forgiveness game, but it's also real fallout. There's great compassion, but there are great repercussions. And one of those is this. The next thing in our list, secret sin, deploys the condemnation of the enemy. Secret sin deploys the condemnation of the enemy. Something I don't think about when I'm in the process of sinning, when I'm in the process of following that up, of hiding that sin away, of keeping people from seeing it, and thinking I'm getting away from it. I forget about this truth, that as sin comes out in my life, and it always does, it's like pouring gasoline on the fiery rhetoric of the God-haters in this world. People who are looking for reasons to say God has no business in their life or you Christians are losers or you are hypocrites. It just flames that fire. Ezekiel 36 verse 19 The Lord is talking about Israel. And He's talking about scattering them to the nations. And He says, I did this and they were dispersed throughout the lands according to their ways and their deeds. I judged them. And when they came to the nations where they went they profaned My holy name because it was said of them these are the people of the Lord yet they have come out of his land. Now your God can't even keep you in your land. Jews, your God is obviously not the God or you wouldn't be thrown all over the world. <laughs> look at your God. And he says, they blaspheme my name. This, this phrase here, where it says, they profaned my holy name, and if we lose power, we're just going to gently and quietly move on out of the barn and... Make our way home. I've got a flashlight up here, so we'll be okay. <laughs> you all are doing great by the way. I, I'm seeing in some of your faces when the when the door rattles or or that happens, I'm seeing some of you go But you're staying put. God bless you all. We better hurry. Okay. (laughs) Secret sin deploys the condemnation of the enemy. He said, I had concern for my holy name, the Lord says, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. The world loves getting fodder for bashing the name of the Lord. I didn't say Christian bashing because honestly we probably deserve it. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus does not deserve to have His name bandied around and bashed and made fun of. And when we sin and that comes out, we have just given the world cause to make fun of, to blaspheme the Lord. That's an aspect of sin I often don't think about when I'm doing what I want to do. And yet it's an intense spiritual truth. When Christians misuse, misuse or defame the name of God, it's the very name that He says... I elevate my name. In fact, two things. He elevates his word and his name. He puts them side by side. Psalm 138, verse 2 tells us. Fourth thing to note, or fifth, whatever we are on this list. Secret sin also delivers an unexpected crop. And I know you might hear me say that. Secret sin, okay, delivers an unexpected crop. Okay, I get it, Rick. Be sure your sin will find you out. you said that over and over. It will. But listen, our sin does more than find us out. It finds us out bigger than when we originally sinned. Our sin gets bigger. Especially those secret hidden sins. Galatians 6-7 again says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. What crop is the size of the seed that is originally sold? No crop is. It's always bigger once it grows and is produced. The seed of our sin that we think we can plant away and hide in the ground when it comes to full fruition is big. And it's always more than we think. As I said earlier, it took about a year for this crop to grow to maturity in David's life. And what the enemy does with secret sin is he he sometimes will even reason with us. Okay, here are the consequences of this sin. If you do this, here's the possible fallout. That's bad, but how bad is it really? Come on. It's worth it, isn't it? I mean, for these few moments of pleasure, get the pleasure, you'll have the sin later. It's not that bad, and we and we buy it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, that's bad, but, but this is an awful lot of fun. It reminds me of my dad and uncle when they were kids and it was Easter Sunday I know I've told this story before but some of you haven't heard it was Easter Sunday and they were in their little Easter Sunday suits and brand new shoes that their mom had just bought for them and they were out in the backyard came home from Easter Sunday service and they were going to have a big lunch and family coming over and they came, can we play out back? yeah but you stay away from the creek well they went right down to the creek and there was a tire swing over the creek so they get on the tire swing and my Uncle Lynn starts swinging back and forth and the tire rope breaks and into the mud he goes splat and then he starts thrashing about and having a great time, climbing up on the side, jumping in and squatting. It's just wonderful. And my dad's standing there and he starts going, that looks like an awful lot of fun. And he knows in his mind, if I join my brother, my mom is going to tan my hide. But okay, it's worth it. And in he goes. <laughs> and she did tan both their hides. But that's the that's the mentality. I've got this, this possible pleasure here. And I know there's going to be fallout and I know it's going to be bad, but... But it's worth it. I'll pay the price later. And we have no idea what the real price is because Satan is a liar. This is all that's going to happen to you. I know it's bad. That's all that's going to happen. No, it's not. It's always more than we expect. The fruit of David and Bathsheba's sin is bigger than David would have expected. Verse 15, continuing on, says, The Lord struck the child, that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick David therefore inquired of God for the child he prayed, he called out don't let this happen David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them it happened on the seventh day that the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him but the child was dead. So they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to, his, to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? And they're whispering in the hallway about this. You tell him. Well, I'm not going to tell him. Yeah, well, you're higher on rank than I am. Yeah, I don't care if I can tell him. You tell him. And they're arguing back and forth and whispering. And David, the Bible says, hears them. Verse 19, When he saw they were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. And so David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped, and then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And his servant said to him, What is this thing you've done? Well, the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but the child died, and you arise and, and eat food? And he said, well, the child was still alive. I fasted and wept. for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? (laughs) Well, what's our insurance like? (laughs) We read this and the question that comes to mind is in the, in the horror of what the aftermath of what's going on here The death of Uriah now the death of his son And, and the brutality of this following Why did this child have to die? Why did the child have to die? And I want you to pay careful attention to this The fruit of David's sin had to die The product of his perversion Had to die now, this is a metaphorical picture that I that I want us to see here. David had this child out of wedlock, the fruit of his sin, and the child had to die. Are you saying that a child born out of wedlock is should should be should die? No, I'm not saying that. It's not the point. The point of this story, though, is that the fruit of David's sin had to die, but he was attached to the fruit. He loved this child. He did not want to lose the child, and the child was the outcome of his sin, and that is very much like us in our lives and our sin. In your list, the fruit of secret sin must die to my concern. The fruit of my sin has got to die. But we sin and we hold on to it and we're attached to it. And we say, I know I did wrong, but, but let me at least just keep the fruit of it. Let me at least just hang on to this child. Don't don't make the child die. Let me keep this. Romans 6.11 says, Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What I'm saying is this. We know that our sin yields a harvest, but sometimes we don't want to let go of that fruit. Like David, we pray, Let the sick sin live. Let the sick things stay alive. Let, Let me hang on to this. It might be my favorite pastime. And the Lord says, Let it go it might be a lifestyle choice that does not jive with righteousness people will say hey I'm gay let me remain I want a relationship with you Jesus I just don't want to let go of the fruit of this sin and the Lord says the fruit's got to die it's got to die it might be business success that grew out of underhanded sinful dealings and yet the success is there and you're saying "I I won't do this anymore but let me keep the product of my sin let me at least hang on to this I won't do it again and the Lord would say, it's got to die. It has to die. It might even be a relationship you need to walk away from. I mentioned the woman caught in adultery a few minutes ago. And Jesus is confronted with this situation. And He says, whoever's sinless, let's go ahead and throw the first stone. Nobody does. They all walk away, oldest to youngest. And she's left there before Him. And He says, is there anyone left to condemn you? And she says, no one. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you anymore either. But listen to what He says. Go... And from now on, sin no more. Do you think the woman caught in that adulterous relationship was in love with the man she was committing adultery with? Probably. Probably. What is the Lord saying? You can't go back to him. You were caught. You are forgiven. You cannot go back. That relationship has to die. It's got to die we cling to it we hang on to it you know I, I don't want to let this thing go I know I fudged on my taxes but I got a great return I'll tie it off it <laughs> David pleads with God fasting in heartbreak for seven days the number of completion by the way the child dies none of his servants want to tell him the child is dead but when David finally hears it it's over and he now can move on which is God's intention. And it's not heartlessness toward the child. The child went immediately to be with the Lord. Okay, the child is saved. The Bible's pretty clear about that, and that's another topic for another time. But David is not being heartless toward the death of his child. He is accepting the judgment of God. And in accepting that, notice the first thing David does. He arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He didn't go eat. He had been fasting for seven days. You can bet he was hungry. But David was more hungry for relationship and fellowship again with the Lord than he was for food so he goes and he worships it's amazing to me he has fully accepted the will of God and gang there is freedom when we stop trying to fight to hold on to the product of our sin God would say let it die Lord I know the music is sinful I'm just going to download a few songs off this album no. I know that rated R means these things are in it but I'll just, I just won't pay attention when they're cussing or I'll close my eyes when they're doing it. But I just really I'd like to see it when the Lord saying let it die. I know I have a problem with alcohol it's just one glass of wine and the Lord says let it die. Because as long as you're holding on to it you will not know the freedom that I am offering you. You won't know As Paul says, Galatians 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let it die, and you can move forward in freedom worshiping the Lord. Verse 23. David said now he has died why should I fast can I bring him back again I will go to him but he will not return to me by the way later when David's son Absalom dies he weeps inconsolably why? because unlike this child I think David wonders if Absalom will ever be saved because of Absalom's sin David wonders will I ever see Absalom again David knows he's going to see this child again he knows where this child is going Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son. This is grace, my friends. He named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. Solomon's name means peaceful. David is now at peace with the Lord. And so he is able to name this son peaceful. The Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he named him Jedediah for the Lord's sake. Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. The product of your sin has to die, David, but, but I will bring the beloved back into your life. The beloved of the Lord, Jedediah. Now Solomon would never be called Jedediah, that was just a name the Lord said, this is how I feel about Solomon. Beloved of the Lord. The Lord wants to conceive Jedediah in you and me. A sick child of sin must die, but know this, the Lord wants you to bear fruit as his beloved. John fifteen sixteen, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Now, the chapter ends these last few verses by taking us back. You need to understand kind of the way of this land. It's important to understand this because of what's about to happen here. And we'll, we'll finish this quickly and be done. But it takes us back... To while this secret sin was going on. okay, This is not now after the forgiveness has happened. It is during the time when David's sin is held secret. Watch this. Verse 26. Joab fought against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. And you can go back and see the beginning of that in chapter 11 verse 1. That's where Joab was this whole time fighting against Rabbah against the Ammonites. Verse 27, Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and have captured the city of waters. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it, or I myself will capture the city and it will be named after me. What's he saying? You sent me to battle and I've done all the hard work, but you're still the king. And if you want your name to be on this battle, come down here and win it. So David goes. He gathered all the people and went to Rabbah, fought against it and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold. This is a huge heavy crown. And it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people. Watch what he does. He brought the people who were in the city and set them under saws. Sharp iron instruments and iron axes and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. This happened while David's sin was secret. How do we know that? Because the same story is told in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. And Bathsheba, that incident, isn't even told about. It's just left out of the Chronicles. This is all happening at the time of David's secret sin. So you've got to overlay the end of the chapter back over the rest of the chapter. This is happening before... David has gotten forgiveness. David's heart is not right. Two possibilities for what's happening here for David's unusually cruel and and harsh behavior. Verse 31 that says that he brought out the people and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and axes and made them pass through the brick kiln may be describing two things. One, the slaughter of the Ammonites by mutilation, chopping, stabbing, burning, horror. And if that's the case, by the way, don't feel sorry for the Ammonites. Amos chapter 1, verse 13, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because, listen to what they did, they ripped open pregnant women in order to enlarge their borders. The Ammonites were a horribly brutal, sin-sick people. The Lord says, I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah and it will consume her citadels amid amid war cries on the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest. And that prophecy actually came about 250 years after David. But did David actually slaughter the Ammonites so ruthlessly? We can understand putting the city to the sword and putting that sin sick people out of their misery. But this kind of slaughter, sawing people in half, killing them with sharp iron instruments, axes... Making them go through the brick kiln. And some have, have even said, well, that's what they did with Molech. And Molech worship is put their babies into the, into the iron furnace of Molech. Maybe David was marching people out of the cities and burning them in the, in the idols of Molech. Probably not, but it's a horribly brutal thing. Is that what happened? The second possibility is that verse 31 describes forced labor on the Ammonites that he put them under the saws and iron instruments and iron axes that it was forced labor he made them work in the brick kilns making brick so it's possible that it was slave labor it's also possible that it was mutilation I don't know which one it is I don't think you can prove really one over the other but in either case these last five verses are parenthetical happening while David was in the midst of secret sin so what? so This being during the time of David's secret sin. We see David behaving in a way that David is not normally known to behave. He comes in and he grabs this great crown and he puts it on his head in pride. All the other battles, he brought the spoil of warfare back to Jerusalem and put it in the storehouse to be used for the the Lord's temple. But now he's grabbing the crown for himself. Look at what a great king I am. Hide, 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 hide. Look at what a wonderful leader I am. Secret, secret, secret sin. I mean, it's all back there and he's promoting himself while that sin is lurking behind him. And brutally putting the Ammonites either to the star or the axe, whether that's, again, slavery or, or death, it's just unlike what we've typically seen from David. He's not right in his heart. Final thing to jot down, secret sin destroys a clean conscience. Secret sin, unchecked sin, sin that we refuse to deal with, will cause us slowly to lose conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, Paul said, The Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, Paul gives this picture of sin in our lives being like a branding iron to your brain. It sears it to where you can't even really see or know right and wrong anymore. And David, when he's pushing this secret sin down, unwilling to deal with it, is now consciousness in his treatment of other people. It was only after the fact, after Nathan came to David, after David was cut to his own heart, after this that David would finally come back to peace before the Lord. But we know that peace will not come. The consequences of David's carnality will follow him now through the rest of his life as we'll see as it begins in our next study. In fact, Sunday morning we're going to see it start to break loose. And it's tragic. But I want to end tonight with the last few verses of Psalm 51. I'll read this to you and and let you get out of this barn. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, David said. Sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. Listen to this. Don't miss this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's the beauty of it. If we reveal secrets, send to the Lord, that's what He's waiting for. He is not waiting to crush, but to heal. To bring back to relationship. To love. To heal and to secure. By your good favor. Do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Now David's starting to think again about other people. Now his heart's getting right. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, burnt offering, and whole burnt offering, and the young bulls will be offered on your altar. Then, David says, worship will happen. Father, I pray that you teach us how like David to let go of our secret sin and to stand and to walk in the wholeness that you invite us to to walk like Jesus and to pursue righteousness in the freedom and compassion and love and joy that is the life of someone forgiven Jesus as you said the person who's been forgiven little loves little but he who's been forgiven much loves much And I pray you would help us to recognize not only our sin, but our forgiveness, Lord. And make us great lovers of you and of other people. In Jesus' name, amen.